Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor. In our bi-monthly podcast, we'll be talking with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Jason Brennan about his new book, The Ethics of Voting. Jason's book was published this year with Princeton University Press. Jason is Research Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Brown University. You might recall that around the time of the 2004 presidential election in the United States, a few pop stars confronted us with an ultimatum, vote or die. Never quite understood the point of this slogan. Was it to be understood as a threat, vote or else? Or was it meant to suggest the more elevated thought that political non-participation is a kind of death? In any case, that it was widely accepted as an appropriate public statement of civic-mindedness always struck me as odd. It seems that any encouragement to vote, even if by intimidation, is morally above board. This is because one of our great pieties is that democratic citizens have an obligation to participate in politics. And it's typically held that the most important mode of political participation is voting. Thus, it's generally thought to be obvious that democratic citizens have a duty to vote, that it's good for citizens to vote, almost no matter what, that voting is almost always morally praiseworthy, or at least that voting is never wrongful. Yet when we think about what voting is, these pieties begin to look very suspicious. By voting, we make collective decisions, and we can decide to do good things or bad things. When we collectively decide to do good things, we often provide benefits to ourselves and others. But when we decide to do bad things collectively, we impose costs on ourselves. It seems odd, then, that the view that voting is always morally praiseworthy should prevail. Uninformed, selfish, immoral, and incompetent voters do not vote well. Shouldn't they be blamed for voting? Might they have a duty not to vote? These broad themes are the subject of Jason Brennan's new book, The Ethics of Voting. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jason. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you today? Not, uh, not too bad. How are you? Uh, just asked you how you are. <laughs> not too bad. <laughs> uh, well, uh, today we're discussing uh, your new book, The Ethics of Voting. And The Ethics of Voting takes aim at a series of commonplace intuitions among supporters of democracy, uh, about voting. Uh, this is a highly provocative, lucid, very lively book. Um, Democrats, that is, uh, people who believe in democracy or support democracy, typically believe that there's a duty to vote, that voting is almost never morally wrong, that nobody can vote in a way that makes them morally blameworthy, and uh, that selling and buying and trading votes uh, is uh, unethical. Um, In your book, Jason, you challenge all of this, uh, and you challenge it in a way that doesn't embrace some form of anti-democratic politics. In fact, you say in the book that this is a pro-democracy view. Um, So there's a lot to discuss, and we'll get to that in a second. So, But first, Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into philosophy and how you got into this project of the ethics of voting? Great, thanks. Uh, well, I grew up in uh, northern Massachusetts and then southern New Hampshire, and my my first real introduction to philosophy came in ninth grade, where I had a world civilization teacher who 
uh, focused on ideas and what role they had in history and how people's beliefs changed history. So uh, thanks to her, I um, at one point in ninth grade, I ended up going to some local bookstore and I bought a copy of uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto and Locke's Second Treatise of Government and started reading. And that was just sort of it for me. I was always into philosophy after that. I, I even bought a copy of the Critique of Pure Reason and read two pages of it and realized I couldn't understand it back in high school. Uh, but, uh, you know, it took me a while to come back. I majored in almost everything in college except for philosophy up until my senior year. Uh, and then I realized, at one point I realized that you get to go to graduate school for free, which is important to me. I'm a, I was a first-generation college student. I was paying for a college out of my own pocket. I couldn't afford to go otherwise. And I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I, I looked at my bookshelf and saw that I had about 30 philosophy books, even though I, at that point, wasn't even a philosophy major. And I said, I should do this. Uh, and then that was it. So nice. I, I changed my major to philosophy. I completed a philosophy degree in uh, one year, uh, kind of overloaded on courses, and, uh, and then went to graduate school. It's been it. Uh, originally, you know, I, when I went first went to grad school, I thought I was going to do philosophy of mind, but I came back to my first love, which was political philosophy, and stayed there since. And where did you do your graduate work? Uh, the University of Arizona. Oh, right. So David Schmitz was my uh, PhD supervisor. Oh, excellent, excellent. And so, um, were you always concerned with with voting and democracy and normative issues about democracy, or that's something that came later? That came later. Um, you know, I, I think for me it was a combination of things. Uh, you know, I came to Brown originally as a pre-doctoral fellow, and I've stayed here as um, in an assistant professor role since then. And, uh, you know, I've got exposed to a lot of democratic theory here because there's just a nexus of people doing it. And so I kind of encountered a bunch of problems I hadn't really thought of before. But I think in the background there's always been this sort of – I've always found certain kinds of problems fascinating. And those are ones where there's kind of a collective action problem where – what the group does makes a lot big difference, but what individuals do doesn't seem to make a difference, or when you have to act strategically within a group and it's not really clear what your input is. And I realized that like, the questions about voting are, are puzzle about uh, involve that. And finally, uh, you know, I read Brian Kaplan's book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, uh, which claims that the typical, um, the typical voter in the United States is irrational, not simply ignorant, but irrational about politics, uh, has systematically biased beliefs and holds his or her political beliefs on the basis of um, irrational thought processes. And uh, Kaplan doesn't make any real normative arguments in the book. It's just a claim that people are irrational. But I started wondering, well, suppose he's right about that. What would that mean? Would they have any ethical obligation to become more rational? Would they have any ethical obligations with regard to how they vote? Um, and so I went from there. And I think part of it is, you know, I just find democratic theory often a little too maybe high-minded, not in the sense that it's utopian or demands a lot, because I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I mean, normative stuff shouldn't be demanding. But, but in that, it, I think it often gives democracy more credit than it really deserves. Um, so I guess in a sense, the ethics of voting, it's not an attack on democracy. It's certainly, as I say in the book, it's pro-democracy, but it's maybe taking it down a notch. Well, that's, that, that's excellent. That gives us a nice uh, sort of segue into talking particularly uh, about one of the things that I like so much about the book. Um, now, uh, maybe this is just my own perversity, but I, I rather like it when philosophers take aim at what counts as common sense or when they try to expose that, uh, some widely held idea or a popular idea as baseless or uh, ill-conceived. And The Ethics of Voting is a book of this kind, at least as I read it. Um, so early in the book, um, you identify your target as what you call the folk theory of voting ethics. Um, and uh, we'll, I'll ask you a little bit about that folk theory in a second. But um, I want to start by asking a more general question, um, because it seems to me that, um, or at least I suspect, maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that um, many people, uh, 
man on man on the street, but maybe even a lot of uh, people who think about political issues for a living. Um, many people are inclined to think that voting might not be an ethical matter at all. Right. That is that there isn't an ethics of voting. Yeah. Voting is you know more like having dinner. It might not involve too much uh, normative uh, uh, content in the first place. But it seems that one of the things that uh, gets established or gets claimed maybe. Uh, at the beginning of the book, is that there are normative concerns. So could you say something very general now without going into your own specific uh, uh, position about uh, why you think we should see voting as a moral issue in the first place? Good, yeah. I think you're right about the, the fact that, because I've, ha I've had a quite a bit of popular press exposure with this, and I've talked to a number of lay people, and you're right that there are a number of them who just think the whole idea of there being an ethics of voting is just absurd. There couldn't be. Um, and, uh, and there's actually a philosophically sophisticated reason to think that, but that's not their reason. Um, I'll get to that in a second. So mm -hmm. I, when we vote, uh, this is sort of paraphrasing the introduction to the book, but when we vote, we make government better or worse, and in turn, we make people's lives better or worse. If we collectively vote very badly, if we make bad choices, uh, all sorts of bad things can happen. We can get stuck in ill-conceived wars that aren't that aren't justified because we vote for hawkish candidates. We can uh, thwart justice. We can have homophobic or sexist or heteronormative or uh, or inegalitarian laws. Um, we can we can pick people who will overregulate in some areas, underregulate in others, or who will you know end up being in the hands of. Uh, uh, rent-seeking uh, special interest groups. Um, I mean, we can do a lot through government as voters to make it worse. Now, of course, how we vote isn't the only thing that affects the quality of government. And we can get bad quality government despite good voting. We can get good quality government despite bad voting. But on the whole, it does make a difference. And also, uh, it's not just if you have a bunch of bad voters that when they come to the poll, um, they'll pick a worse, tend to pick a worse candidate among the, the candidates available. But the quality of the candidates is itself endogenous to the quality of voters. So the worse voters are to begin with, the worse quality the candidates are that are there. Uh, so I think it's, it's clearly an ethical issue because it has, the stakes are quite high. We're not just picking flag colors. We're not just picking um, uh, what, uh, you know, what our national anthem will be. We're picking policies that determine war and peace and justice. And also we're imposing these things upon innocent people through violence and threats of violence. I mean, it's important to remember that government is not voluntary. You can't just walk away. If, uh, say, the government of Tennessee decides to ban uh, people from uploading certain images it finds offensive, that's, that's imposed through force right, uh, and violence. Uh, so we're, we're, doing something, um, we're doing something through violence, and that needs to be justified. And there's a lot of high stakes when it comes to justifying those sorts of things. Now, some people might think of it as, well, you just get to vote your conscience. You just get to vote however you like, and you're just sort of choosing for yourself. But you're not just choosing for yourself. Uh, you're externalizing your decision onto other people. I mean, if you were just, if you were the lone voter deciding for the whole country, it's really clear what happened. You would be deciding for everyone. And they're making a monopolistic decision that everyone has to live with. So it's not like going to a restaurant and, say, deciding what you're going to eat. And, of course, as we've seen, a lot of philosophers have a lot to say about the ethics of just of what you choose to eat. But uh, right. most people think eating is sort of morally neutral. And let's say that they were right about that. You know, if, if I go and decide to eat a bunch of candy bars, um, I'm imposing costs upon myself. If I become overweight because of that, at least I'm the only one that has to suffer the consequences. But as a voter, I'm choosing for everyone. So if I do the, the voting equivalent of making everyone eat candy bars, then I'm forcing them to get fat. Now, the problem, though, uh, there is a philosophical puzzle about the ethics of voting, and that is that uh, this isn't sort of the sophisticated reason. I mean, I'm sorry, like this isn't the reason the layperson thinks that there's no ethics of voting, but this is a more sophisticated reason. And the worry is individual votes just don't seem to make much of a difference. Uh, there, is one, there is an exception in the literature, uh, Aaron Edlin and um, 
uh, Gelman think that uh, individual votes have a pretty high probability of being decisive. But aside from those two, are there, like I say, McCloth or Kaplan, aside from those three, most people think that the probability that your individual vote will be decisive in any, any election, including a congressional election, is just vanishingly small. And so the expected utility of an individual vote is, is vanishingly small. The expected utility of a really bad vote is vanishingly small. And so you might think, even if we as a group um, collectively make a big difference how we vote, in how we vote, uh, it's not clear why any individual person would have any ethical obligations with regard to voting. You might just think that individual, individual votes are morally neutral because they're not consequential. Uh, so there is a puzzle there about uh, why, whether it could be an ethics of personal voting, even if there's not much of a puzzle about how we should vote. Right. So, and, and I, I want to ask you about uh, about what you've just called the, this puzzle uh, in a second. Um, but before we move on, can you? Um, so, the book begins with a description of what, as I said, what you call the folk theory of voting ethics. Um, could you say something uh, more determinate about what you think that folk theory is, right. or what its contents are? Okay. And so, I think the typical American uh, believes the following: they think that. You really should vote. Prima facie, you have a fairly strong obligation to vote. Um, you, it can be overridden sometimes if you have an emergency or if you have very good grounds for not voting. But overall, you should vote. It's praiseworthy to vote, and it's blameworthy not to vote. They also think within pretty wide limits that you can vote however you please. You can vote selfishly if you want. You can vote altruistically. Um, you can vote. You can vote for no good reason at all. It's better. It's better to vote for no reason than not to vote. Just, I mean, you see people saying, "Get out the vote." Doesn't matter if you don't know anything. Just go and vote because that just legitimates government or something. We just like to see people vote. I like to see people voting. Um, I mean, so most people would think it's wrong to vote for Hitler, but they wouldn't have very much, much more strict ethical requirements in voting beyond that. Uh, and then finally, I think most people think that uh, buying, trading, and selling votes is inherently wrong. It's wrong in itself, regardless of how you vote when you do this. Uh, now, not everybody thinks this. Um, some, Amer some Americans, like typical Americans, don't agree with that. But I think I think most Americans probably believe that. Now, among philosophers, many of them share those attitudes, but many of them have uh, have have different views. So there are some philosophers who think, well, individual votes don't make a difference. So uh, they don't. It doesn't matter how you vote. It's morally neutral. And there are other philosophers, typically uh, democratic theorists and uh, deliberative Democrats and so on, who think that. Um, you have an obligation to vote, and you should vote well. Where voting well involves having public deliberation um, and having some sense of like the common good and voting accordingly. So my view is a bit unusual in that I think there's no obligation to vote. It's morally neutral not to vote. Uh, you don't have any you don't have any duties to do so. Uh, but if you do vote, you must vote well. Um, so you have very strict obligations with how you cast a vote if you decide to do it. But it's completely optional to you as to whether you do it or not, at least under normal circumstances. Right, and so that's a provocative uh, uh, position um, because it is, uh, you know, typically, um, and and you know this as well as anyone that uh, when people talk about the inconsequential uh, nature of an individual vote, uh, it's typically uh, when people talk about the ignorance people bring to the voting booth when they do vote. These are typically uh, moves that are made at the beginning of some kind of either uh, anti-democratic argument or some kind of uh, what's sometimes called elitist theory of democracy or uh, uh, some kind of realist theory of democracy. And these are views which say something like, um, yeah, it's a mistake to think that there is a common good that can be pursued by means of political action in a democracy because either the concept of the common good is fundamentally incoherent or um, uh, problematic in some other ways. Now, your view, uh, I take it, um, 
is committed to some conception of the common good mm. of a kind that um, uh, the Brian Kaplan's and others, uh, well, uh, William uh, uh, Riker and Schumpeter and these sort of uh, staples in uh, democratic theory are going to deny. Can you say something now? We're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves in terms of the, the flow of the book, but I think it would be interesting to know up front. Say something about what your view is of the common good. Okay, good. And for what it's worth, I think, I think Kaplan might be actually believe there is something like a common good, whereas those other people like Riker, I think, don't. Right. Um, there's a sense, I mean, I have a view of the common good, uh, but there's a sense in which the book is relatively neutral. I try to I think of it as use the word the common good in the book as a stand-in for the, for the claim that there are such a thing as the right ends of government. And then the argument in the book ends up being compatible with a pretty wide range of theories of the right ends of government. Uh, so the claim is like, if you have some political philosophy about what government ought to do, uh, you, know, you might be a Rawlsian egalitarian liberal, or you might be a libertarian, or you might have some other normative view. This book will end up being compatible with a lot of views like that. Uh, however, in order to sort of fix on the idea that you just shouldn't be skeptical about the idea of the common good, um, you know, I do kind of say, well, here's here's a particular view. So um, I tend to think of the common good uh, as being something like this. Uh, something is assumed to be or presumed to be in the common good if it benefits most people, and then the people it doesn't benefit, if it doesn't, the other people, the ones that aren't benefited, um, at least does not exploit them. Um, right. And and so pe some people are skeptical about the common good uh, because they think, you know, we, we don't all share the same ends or goals or so on. But... I think if we step back and think, look, most, despite having a diversity of ends that we're trying to pursue, we're all dependent upon certain kinds of institutions. We all benefit from having stable government. We benefit from having stable money. We benefit from having the possibility of trade with one another. We benefit from having things that expand uh, the means of production or expand um, you know, the, the range of options open to us. And, and certain institutions tend to promote that, and certain institutions tend to thwart that. So. Uh, so, so despite the diversity of ends that we have, there's a certain core of things which will tend to promote uh, to make most of our lives go better. Uh, and so, so you can have a very generic uh, conception of the common good that's compatible with liberal ideas that there's a diversity of ends and pluralism about the good life. Um, I'm not, I don't hold that there's, I, per, I mean, my view is compatible with the view that denies this, but my, I personally don't think that there's a common good above and beyond the interest of individuals. I think the common good is a function of individual interests. So in contrast, some people think that um, there could be what Lemaski and Brennan call um, strongly irreducible common good, uh, common goods where you know at, you know some G is a strongly irreducible common good if G is a uh, um, good for society as a group, but not necessarily good for any of its members. So for example, uh, Sparta's military might what was arguably bad for every single Spartan, but right. be good for Sparta. Uh, I, you know, I don't personally think there's anything like that. Uh, I think there's just, you know, prosperity is good because it benefits individual people as individuals. Uh, diversity is good because it benefits individual people as individuals. Uh, stability is good because it benefits individual people as individuals. So, right. so there's a sense in which, uh, I mean, I have, I have a couple, uh, a few pages around chapter five arguing against skepticism about the common good, and I have given you kind of a rough overview of my right. personal view of it, but... I don't think my my theory is dependent upon my particular view. It just requires that there be something something like the common good. Um, right. So, but you are committed to the to the idea that um, uh, voting, when it is done well and done permissibly, uh, has to in somehow uh, be driven by well, maybe driven by a shoestring. At least has to in some way. Uh, be aimed at furthering the common good. Yeah, that is, right. that you do think that selfish voting or purely self-interested or purely strategic voting 
uh, is morally problematic, even though um, I think I remember this correctly. Uh, you think that there are some cases in which strategic voting is consistent with pursuing the common good. Right. Is that right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, you know, I don't give it like a, a long strategic voting is really complicated and it's hard to, to know whether it works or not. And I don't want to really get into that. So because right. um, it's, it's just a question about, well, is it if it works, is it compatible with this theory? So what I'm saying is uh, you vote well, according to my theory, provided you vote for what you justifiably believe will promote the common good. And I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that idea. But just to focus, focus on the idea of the common good here, uh, sometimes strategic voting is the thing that helps you do that. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the best arguments in favor of selfish voting would be if selfish voting somehow, as if through an invisible hand of politics, promoted the common good. Uh, so, you know, in, in economics, they often claim that self-interested behavior on the market tends to promote the common good. I go to the market and I buy stuff that I want just for myself. I don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to whether it benefits other people. But in general, if you have a well-functioning price mechanism and if externalities are adequately internalized and you have the rule of law, when I go and buy something selfishly, like say I buy... Uh, you know, Mesa Boogie Mark V amplifier. Um, I end up helping a bunch of people in California, and I help the people that they buy stuff from, and it ends up promoting the common. Like I'm, I'm taking part in a system of trade, and then ends up promoting the common good. And whether or not, you know, some people dispute whether that's even true of markets, but that's not my interest here. The question is, is that actually true of politics? And there are people like uh, Posner and others who uh, come close to saying that it is is the case, but I don't think so. Uh, I think. Politics is unlike the market in a lot of respects. For one, it's not voluntary. I can't just walk away from a bad transaction. So if I go to a store and offer money for a guitar, the, the guitar salesman can say no if he doesn't think the money's worth it. So there's a strong tendency for, you know, we have in the market to have agreed upon trades. So it's likely it'll be uh, mutually beneficial. In politics, it's not like that. When my neighbors decide to vote badly, I just have to deal with it. And I can't do anything about it. Um, also, the information is hard to get. I mean, I don't want to say that uh, market actors are perfectly well-informed. Of course, they're not, and they're often irrational. We know a lot from behavioral economics about all the ways that they uh, uh, fall short of, mark of uh, economic rationality. But uh, in politics, information is even harder to acquire. You don't have something like a price signal that tells you about relative scarcity and relative demand. You just, it's just hard to get the information. Uh, and also, you know, the decisions are imposed monopolistically. There's one decision for all. Uh, so I think that the, the things about the market that make it so that selfish behavior can promote the common good tend to be absent in politics. You can get away with quite a bit of selfish behavior, and as long as it's not enough to start a revolution or cause civil war, uh, it just will end up hurting other people. Um, and so again, since we are imposing, since political decisions are imposed upon innocent people through violence and threats of violence, there's a clear ethical obligation for us as a collective not to vote in a way that exploits uh, the minority, the people who don't get their way. But then the, the interesting question will be, how could there be an ethical obligation for me to vote a particular way, given that my vote doesn't make a difference? Uh, but we'll get, right. we're going to get to that later. Yeah, we're going to get to that uh, in a second. But this makes a, a, a nice uh, move into one of the more um, uh, sort of dialectical uh, parts of the book, because you do take up uh, several um, common or maybe even intuitive arguments in favor of the idea that there is this duty to vote, um, uh, as the folk theory uh, uh, suggests. Uh, and then you, I think, in a very lively and uh, I think very compelling way, I should say, try to show that each of these sort of uh, intuitive sounding or plausible sounding arguments on their face, at least, uh, don't work. So uh, could you uh, walk us through a little bit of that part of the book where you take sure. up these different conceptions of the duty to vote and then show that uh, these, these sort of standard arguments don't quite uh, 
uh, get us to their conclusions. Okay, good. Well, the first set of arguments I look at are the are kind of the most obvious ones to look at, and those are ones that claim that uh, that your your individual vote will make a difference in some way, and that's why you should uh, you should vote. So, I mean, suppose it turned out that casting a vote cost me 15 minutes of time, and it, it had an expected a good vote at least had expected utility of say a hundred thousand dollars. Well, then you'd ha start having a pretty strong reason to think that it's, it's obligatory. It hardly costs you anything, and it does a lot of good. Um, and so there's some arguments that try to work on that. So there's an argument that says, uh, you know, you should vote because it's in your self-interest to vote. Um, the expected utility of your vote is really high, uh, and it's, you need it to protect yourself. Um, there's a similar argument, which is more of an ethical argument, saying that the expected utility of an individual vote is high. It doesn't cost you much to do it, so you should do something in order to, like, help everyone else. Um, the problem with those two arguments is that at least in the most common way of calculating the expected utility of votes, uh, your vote almost never has any expected utility. It's vanishingly small. So I give some examples of the book. Uh, you know, suppose you know Obama promises to pay me personally ten trillion dollars. No, sorry, ten billion dollars if he wins the election. And suppose the number of uh, voters in the election is expected to be um, the same uh, in 2008 as it was in 2004. And suppose Obama enjoys a mere 50.5% lead in the polls coming into election day. Well, on that, using, uh, say, Lauren Lemaski and Jeffrey Brennan's formula for the expected utility of voting, and that's the most popular one in the literature, uh, the expected utility of my vote ends up being 1.45 times 10 to the negative uh, $2,647, I think, <laughs> correctly. So it's just nothing. Right. So those arguments aren't likely to work. Uh, but then there are other kinds of arguments. Like there's, there's an argument that says uh, Anthony Downs kind of speculated offhand, and I don't think he's very serious, that, well, there's some chance that democracy will collapse if it right. doesn't get a sufficient number of votes. And on that point, I say, well, you know, there's a couple ways of interpreting that, but one is there's some unknown threshold, you know, some magic number of votes needed, and under that, uh, uh, the democracy will collapse, and over that, it won't. And you can ask, you can calculate, well, what's the probability, like, that my vote will be the decisive vote? And, you know, so I do some, uh, some mock calculations, giving some very generous numbers, and it turns out to be vanishingly small, so small that uh, it wouldn't even make sense to cast a vote for the purposes of insurance. Um, right. And then there's a more plausible interpretation of that that says, well, every vote marginally tends to improve the quality of government. So you think of the quality of government as being a function of the number of voters. The more people that vote, the higher quality government you get, all things being equal. Uh, but the problem with that is that's an empirical claim. And, and what I was kind of shocked to find this. Lots and lots and lots of people assert that that's the case. And then they'll have a footnote in their book when they assert that. And then I go and track down the footnote, and it's somebody else asserting it. And they footnote it, and I go and track it down. <laughs> And it just ends in pure assertion. So what I found is there's nothing in the literature, and I, I've looked pretty extensively, so I'm pretty sure it's not there. There's nothing in the literature that actually shows empirically that the quality of government is a function of the number of voters. All you get is, uh, instead of the opposite, empirically, the higher quality government you get, all things being equal, the more voters you get. Or better yet, better way of putting it is, when people perceive government to be high quality, all things being equal, that makes them more likely to vote. I mean, there are some mathematical models, like Connor says, jury theorem that says more voting leads to higher quality government. But um, without getting too much into that, I'm... I'm well, that, yeah, that's I'm, notoriously problematic. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that applies to the real world. It's just an interesting mathematical curiosity. So, uh, yeah, so I don't think that argument works either. And even, even if it were, were the case that the quality of government were a function of the number of voters, you would still, for that kind of argument to show that you have a duty to vote, you'd need to show that the marginal impact of a voter is of an individual vote is high enough that it makes sense for them for you to vote. And most likely, what you're going to find is that there's diminish. If that were the case, and I don't think it is, that you'd have diminishing marginal utility. The first number number of voters, 
uh, will have very high utility and the last builders will have almost none. And so what you'll get is an intuitive result. It's important that you have a sufficiently high number of voters vote, but not that everybody vote. In fact, I just published a paper on this uh, in the journal Politics. It said like even on Condorcet's jury theorem, like you know the first few voters, they're expected their marginal impact is extremely high, and the last few voters, their marginal impact is vanishingly small. So even in a high-stakes election, uh, you don't need more than, say, 100,000 voters to vote, which I guess isn't super surprising. Um, so, so it's hard to show that from those kinds of arguments that there's a general obligation for everyone to vote. Uh, right. But I'm um, sorry, please continue. Okay. Uh, I, asked, I spent a lot of time talking about Richard Tuck's book, Free Riding, and things he says there, and, and how he might try to establish an, an argument on behalf of voting. Uh, but I guess, you know, since a lot of older people won't be familiar with that, I, won't, I guess we probably shouldn't get into it. Uh, but sure, I, I, wanted, okay, go ahead. I, wanted to, I wanted to ask about the civic virtue uh, uh, arguments, though. So um, I take it that especially among uh, democratic theorists, and you mentioned deliberative democratic theorists, and um, it seems as if almost everybody these days has some role for public deliberation in their theory. Um, I take it that uh, the mainstream in democratic theory will be attracted to the civic virtue accounts of the duty to vote. That yeah. is that uh, not voting is somehow failing at your obligation uh, as a citizen. Now, um, can you say a little bit about those arguments in particular, and then uh, sure. we could talk about your own conception of civic virtue, which is fascinating. Okay, thanks. So here's a, here's a really simple argument in favor of voting. It just it goes like this. Civic virtue is a moral virtue, premise one. Premise two, uh, in order to exercise civic virtue, you need to vote. Therefore, you need to vote. Some variation on that. It's a very simple argument, and most people agree with those premises. So it seems like it leads straightforwardly to a claim that it's at least virtuous to vote, um, or, even, or to a claim that you have an ethical obligation to vote. Like you should exercise civic virtue, and in order to do that, you must vote. I mean, but, uh, and then I challenge that in the book, because I think uh, you, well, we'll get into that. Uh, another argument that I think is plausible, uh, like intuitively plausible, is sort of a public goods argument goes something like this. Good government is a public good. It's a good that we all enjoy. It's a good that um, you can't, if it's provided for some, it's provided for all. Um, and if you don't vote, then you're free riding on the provision of good government. So if everyone else in the country goes and votes, and they like put in the time to learn how to vote and so on, and like learn whom to vote for and study the issues, and then they go and vote, then they provide good government. I, if I say don't vote, I benefit from having good government, but I haven't sort of paid my due back in turn. I'm just sort of, it's sort of like they keep the glass, grass clean and, and clear, and I, I just get to walk on whatever I want. So it seems like I'm, some people think I'm free riding on the provision of good government. So I'm taking advantage of other people's hard work, and I'm not providing something back in return, in which case uh, it's kind of exploitative. And so that might be a reason for you to vote, um, according to the argument, it might be a reason why you have an ethical obligation to vote, even though your individual vote won't make a difference. It's just why should other people bear the cost of providing good government, and you just get to have the, the good benefits of it without doing anything back in turn. Uh, and so I think those are the two most powerful arguments um, in favor of thinking that there is a duty to vote. Now, there's another argument that just says you have an ethical obligation to be the agent of other people's good, not simply that you, as, a, as a citizen you should make sure other, other citizens have, have reasonably good lives and you should do something to promote that. Um, and uh, so you know, it's important that you participate in politics for that reason. So these are some of the arguments I think that are a little bit better uh, um, in favor of thinking that there's an argument, in favor of thinking that there's a duty to vote. But then what I want to do in, the, uh, in one chapter of the book, chapter two, is just come in and come up with a, a new theory of civic virtue that I think undermines all those arguments. Right. And could you tell us a little bit about that? So sure. uh, you're right that uh, 
it it seems um, one of the great platitudes in political theory that civic virtue will always include some very strong uh, 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 duty to participate politically, and that almost always means in the literature voting. Right. Uh, and I think you do a very very nice job of dis- dismantling this platitude. Uh, so please. Okay, great. So I think what I want to do with civic virtue is what other people have done with courage. Think back, uh, I don't necessarily know the exact year for this, but I'm sure if we went back to, say, ancient Greece or archaic Greece and you asked about courage, so let's say 1200 B.C. Greece, and you said, what's courage? You'd hear a bunch of people say, well, it's a, it's a virtue for males, um, and it's a virtue that's exercised on the battlefield. And so it's a, it's a martial virtue. And they might have thought it kind of puzzling to, to think that, you know, a woman could exercise courage in giving, in, in birthing a child or in doing household duties, or that uh, you could exercise courage in writing a philosophy paper if they even had any understanding of what that could be. Uh, but I think nowadays we sort of understand better about courage. Courage is sort of an appropriate response to danger, um, but it's not something that has to be exercised in the battlefield. We've kind of recognized that courage is this sort of abstract thing and it can be exercised almost anywhere. And I want to do the same sort of thing for civic virtue. I think we have almost an archaic view of civic virtue. Uh, we are, what is to, to exercise civic virtue, um, according to almost everybody, if you, if you go and look up their definitions, they almost all give the same definition. It's you're, exercising civic virtue means um, you have a strong enough disposition to promote the common good over purely private ends, and you have a strong enough tendency to actually do it. Um, uh, but then people then immediately go after defining it like that. They say, well, civic virtue is about voting and participating in politics. And I say, no, it could actually be exercised almost anywhere. Um, so, so let's go through the argument. So almost everyone defines civic virtue as the disposition to promote the common good over purely private ends. But that definition leaves open the question of where you exercise civic virtue. It's, it, it, there's a big gap between saying civic virtue is the disposition to promote the common good over purely private ends to the claim that civic virtue is uh, something that has to be exercised through politics. Because you have to ask a couple questions. Well, what is the common good? What are the sorts of things that can promote it and so on? Uh, and what I argue in the book is that you can you can promote the common good in all sorts of ways. Polit- political ways can be a way of promoting the common good, but so can private activity. So uh, you know, let's just say introductory microeconomics is roughly right. Well, what does it say about our, our activity as agents? If I'm if I'm a business owner, let's say I'm, I'm Randall Smith of Mesa Boogie. I've been mentioned a couple times. I have a Mesa yeah. Boogie amplifier. Uh, if I'm Randy Smith of Mesa Boogie and I invent high gain amplifiers, well, um, you know I've that can lead to a lot of good things. I can I can revolutionize music through that, and I can benefit a lot of other people, and it can kind of create a culture. It's not just I'm not just directly benefiting my uh, customers and sort of the people my customers interact with, but you can think of it as say in a market setting or something. We're we're all engaged in a process of social construction. We're creating a culture of opportunity. We're we're creating networks of trade, and that in turn makes it so other people are able to do things they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So we're making so other people, like the, the floor of like what counts as the baseline of wealth and so on gets higher and higher. Um, so you can say that about, say, market activity. Like typical market activity, though not all, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of blatant exceptions to this rule, as we've seen recently and, and so on. Uh, typical market activity is common good promoting. And not just that, but artistic activity and cultural activity. Uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, or let's say Michelangelo, if Michelangelo had never voted, if he had an opportunity or so on, I, I don't know if it would make a difference. He's still done a lot to promote the common good. And by making good art, he's done a lot more to promote other people's good lives than he would through anything he could have done in politics. Mm-hmm. And I ask people to imagine like an extreme case of this. Suppose there's a character named Phyllis the Physician. And Phyllis is a medical genius. Every hour she spends on medicine, she comes up with 
some sort of breakthrough. Uh, so she invents some new form of medicine or something like that. If we wanted Phyllis to actually be publicly spirited, we wouldn't want her to waste her time on politics. It's almost There's almost no chance she would do as much good through politics as she would through medicine. We'd want her to devote her time through medicine. And if Phyllis wants to be publicly spirited, that's where she might uh, put her activities. Now, Phyllis is an extreme case, but elements of that are going to generalize for everybody. Uh, for any one of us, given what we're good at, given what other people are doing and what they're good at, if we want to promote the common good, there's going to be some mix of political and non-political activities. So I think that you can exercise civic virtue by being a good artist, by being a good grocery sacker, by being a good dad, and not just being a good dad who teaches your kid to vote, but by being a good dad who just plays with your kid, um, by... Uh, by cleaning up the streets, by, vo by volunteering, by serving in the military, by refusing to serve in the military sometimes, by doing a whole wide range of things. Opportunities for civic virtue are everywhere. Now, the important point about this is I'm not just saying that lots of things that you do promote the common good, therefore they count as exercises of civic virtue, because that, that would there's an important component of civic virtue that has to do with motivation, right. uh, which almost anyone would grant. Uh, if it turns out that, let's, let's say I become president, um, and I do a really good job. I fix the economy. I fix health care. Um, I, I lift the poor up so they double their income in four years or something like that. I do all these things. And then I, I write a book afterwards explaining why I decided to do that. I said, well, I actually have no concern whatsoever for other people. I just really like power. And the only way I could get it was by helping others. So I guess I had to. Well, in that kind of case, I'm, I'm kind of sociopathic. I've done a lot of good for other people, but I'm, I'm also still a jerk. I don't have virtue. So I don't have civic virtue. Um, so similarly, I want to say the same thing about say, market activity and so on, or artistic activity and other kinds of extra-political activity. Uh, it's not, if in order to have civic virtue through those sorts of things, it's not enough that you, um, uh, it's not enough that you simply promote the common good or have strong disposition, but you also have to be disposed to promote the common good. You have to be sufficiently motivated. Now, what counts as sufficiently motivated? Whatever the common sense view says. It does, there's not, that's not going to be an area of contention between the kind of common sense view of civic virtue and my view. It's, we are, we're all going to have to answer that question. We can answer it the same way. Uh, so I don't think to exercise civic virtue, you need to participate in politics any more than in to exercise courage, you have to go and fight people on a battlefield. Now, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask sort of um, uh, uh, what I suspect the, the, the more standard uh, proponent of civic virtue might say. Couldn't someone say, um, uh, and I'm thinking again, Richard Dagger, I mean, the, the, the sort of civic virtue enthusiast, say something like, well, uh, all this is fine and good, but as maybe even an empirical matter, the way that those dispositions that are necessary for civic virtue uh, develop is through um, some kind of interactions with other people decidedly in your role as fellow citizen. That is, that is there a way for, uh, for someone to defend the more standard account of civic virtue, which again, uh, uh, countenance is a much tighter connection between civic virtue and something like political participation and maybe even voting. Uh, is there a way for someone to say, well, the dispositions don't really get formed uh, uh, reliably except in these uh, uh, more political contexts? Yeah. If someone were to show that, I mean, that's an empirical claim. And if someone right. were to actually show that, uh, yeah, I think it would make a big difference. Um, it wouldn't then really exactly show that those activities are necessary for virtue in any sort of conceptual sense. It would just show, well, it turns out it's, it's a strange feature of, of human psychology that in order for people to develop these kinds of virtues, they have to do certain things. I mean, it'd be like if someone said, it turns out this, we did a study and the, people never develop civic virtue unless they read John Stuart Mill. Well, that, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't exactly show that there's a duty to read John Stuart Mill, but it would show that there's like a, it's a really good idea given quirks about human nature. 
so I think you might you might say the same thing about politics. If it turns out that people can't develop the dispositions or never do develop the dispositions unless they engage in politics, uh, then it might be a good idea for them to do so. But it wouldn't it still wouldn't exactly show there's a duty. It would just show that the means to achieving this um, require some certain degree of uh, of political participation. I mean, that being said, I just I don't think that's likely to be true. And in part. If we even have some evidence that is true, it might be dependent upon the fact that we have a certain view of civic virtue. I mean, we have, right. I tend to think that we have a certain, even though most people aren't civic Republicans, the view of civic virtue that is popular is a civic Republican one. It is a kind right. of archaic view that was uh, built into ancient Rome, uh, not, not really exercised there properly, but but widely believed in ancient Rome and we've kind of inherited. Um, and what we need to do is develop a new liberal theory appropriate to our times. Um, so. I think you tell a lot of people that the message that they get is, oh, when you're doing art, or when you're, unless it's political art, or when you're doing business, unless you're sort of calling up the senator and asking what you can do to help the country, or when you're making music, or when you're doing all sorts of other kind of private activities, you're just being a selfish person, you're being a private individual, you're not having any impact on the common good, you're not doing anything that has any public benefit, that, that doesn't count as civic virtue. And I think people internalize that, and that in, in turn causes them to think of themselves a certain way and causes them not to be motivated a certain way. Uh, if, if, they were, if they were to sort of read my view and, and accept it, it might, it's possible, I don't know, it's speculative, it's possible it would actually change their attitudes. They might think, well, you know, if I'm making cell phones, um, you know, I'm not just making money, but I'm also, you know, opening possibilities for communication with people and, and so on, and that's, that's part of my motive as well. And, and for what it's worth, I mean, you know, I haven't gone out and done big empirical studies here, but I... But from what I've seen trying to read up about this, I think the typical person engaged in private activities does think he's making a positive uh, difference on the world, is helping other people, and is glad to do so. You know, they're not simply out for themselves. Right. Uh, right. Now, that's a, this is, so far we've only kind of talked about civic virtue, but there's, uh, there's that other argument about free riding and the question of, uh, if you don't vote, are you free riding on the provision of public goods? I mean, other people provide good governance for you, and you're not doing anything back in turn. Uh, and I, and there, I, in that same chapter, chapter two of this book, I challenge that view as well. So my view is, if you want to think of yourself as having a debt to society, I'm not saying that there is one, but if you want to think of it that way, if you want to think of yourself as receiving a bundle of goods from society, you can ask, how do you pay that back? So I, I receive a bundle of goods, I get economic goods and cultural goods and political goods and so on. How do I repay for that? Now, one, one view is, in order to pay for that bundle of goods, you have to provide every kind of good back in turn. So if you get a political good, you have to provide a political good back in turn in exchange. If you get a cultural good, you have to provide cultural goods back in exchange, or otherwise you're free riding on the stuff that you get. But an alternative view, I think a more attractive view, is you can specialize. Uh, so someone like Obama can, can repay his debts to society simply by specializing in politics and providing good political goods back in turn. I'm not saying that he's done that, but uh, could, could provide good political goods back in turn, and then that will repay the other stuff that he gets. And, and someone else might pay for good governance by um, doing providing economic benefits from other people. You're not simply free riding, you're not simply taking. And one reason to believe that is just about how specialization works. Uh, suppose you, know, you and I are on a desert island and there are apples and bananas. Um, well, one thing we could do is we could each get apples, we could each get bananas. Um, another thing that we could do, though, is I could specialize in getting the apples, and you could specialize in getting the bananas, and then we could trade, and typically that will result in both of us having more apples and more bananas than we otherwise would get. So by specializing, I don't just become better at doing something myself, but I also create an environment in which I enable you to specialize. So by specializing in, say, in, say business activity, um, perhaps at the exclusion of politics, 
I might create an environment under which other people are able to specialize in politics and not have to worry about the business stuff. I mean, Obama doesn't have to worry about making his own clothes. He doesn't have to worry about where the food's coming from. He can just specialize in politics. So the people that are making the clothes and are making the food are enabling him to do that. Uh, so I think specialization is a, is a process of mutual enablement. And so you're not simply, uh, you're providing a good back in turn. You're also making it so other people are able to do their thing. So by doing non-political activity, I'm often thereby making political activity go better. Uh, so that's a reason to think that you're not simply free riding when you're not engaging in politics. I mean, that being said, that's not to say that everybody who simply engages in, in private activity fails to free ride. There, probably, there are some people who never engage in politics and who simply do private stuff and who might still be said to free ride on the rest of society, like maybe they're not providing enough in turn. But if I had to have a litmus test for whether you've paid a debt to society, be something like this. If society is better off with you than without you, you've probably paid your debt. Um, right. I have some exceptions to that, but that would be kind of my de default rule. Um, right. So can we move on then? So sure. because so let's 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 grant then that the the standard arguments for uh, there being a duty to vote are uh, inconclusive or worse. Um, <laughs> In, your, in the Ethics of Voting book, you, though, push for a, a stronger thesis, uh, uh, but clearly related, uh, namely that, um, that for some and perhaps many, there's a duty not to vote. Mm -hmm. um, now, so I want to ask you um, about that claim, but also to say a little bit more about uh, what we said or what you, you described earlier as a puzzle, because it looked as if one of the arguments um, that was driving at least your, your objections to the uh, the less sophisticated versions of the argument in favor of the duty to vote is the sort of your vote, an individual vote is inconsequential. Right. So it looks as if a puzzle looms. If an individual vote is inconsequential, how could it be possibly the case that right. there's a duty not to vote? So yeah. uh, say a little bit about both of those things because okay. it's a very, very good part of the book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good. I mean, there's a sense in which I'm kind of glad that individuals are inconsequential because it makes my work interesting, you know, but, uh, um, uh, you know, so the probability that your vote will be decisive is vanishingly small. The marginal impact of a vote is vanishingly small. Some people try to argue that, well, by voting you change the mandate, but uh, the whole idea of there being mandates is just bad political science anyways. Political scientists don't believe in mandates. The only people who believe in that are non-political scientists, so let's not worry about that either. Uh, so, like, individual votes don't seem to make much of a difference, in which case individual bad votes don't make much of a difference. I mean, if you voted for Hitler in 1930, we don't vote for Hitler, if you voted for the Nazi party in uh, the third election in 1932, uh, you're, you're in a sense participating in a bad activity, but you're not, you're, you're not making a difference. What's going to happen is going to happen anyways. Um, and with any, of, uh, any election we're going to have here in the United States, it's the same kind of thing. It's just you're, the probability to make a difference is vanishingly small. They expect the marginal utility of your vote or disutility of the vote is vanishingly small. So those are reasons to think that your vote just doesn't matter. Ethically speaking, it's neutral. How we vote makes a difference. How you vote doesn't. Um, but against that, I want to argue that there is uh, an ethics of participation. And I have a bunch of arguments for this, but um, let's just start off with a thought experiment. Uh, so suppose uh, you come across... Um, uh, you're, you're walking down the street one day and you come across a bunch of trained sharpshooters and they're about to execute an innocent person, say a small child. And you say, what's going on? They're like, well, we're trained sharpshooters and here's what we're going to do. We're all, where there's 10 of us, we're all going to fire shots simultaneously and we'll each hit the child with a, with a, what would on its own be a fatal shot simultaneously. 
Um, so, and then you can't stop them. There's nothing you can do about it. And they say, well, how would you like to take a shot as well? We have this gun here. It's really easy to aim. And if you fire it, we'll make sure to hit the child at exactly the same time with 10 extra fatal shots. So again, like what you do won't make a difference. The child will die regardless and you can't stop it. But most of us have a strong intuition that, at least in this case, you should just walk away and keep your hands clean. So you might call that even the clean hands principle. It's if you have the possibility of participating in a collectively harmful activity, where a collectively harmful activity is one where what the group does as a group is harmful, but individual inputs given the group activity don't make a difference, um, but you can walk away from that without, making, without any sort of major cost yourself, then you should do so. You're ethically obligated not to. Most of us have this intuition that you should not participate in shooting the child, even though shooting doesn't make a difference. So intuitively, there's kind of an ethics of participation here that you should sometimes not do something with the group, even though your individual input doesn't matter. Um, and then what I want to do is argue, not, not just relying on that intuition from a thought experiment, but argue that there's other reasons to, to kind of back up that intuition. Um, so maybe I should get into it, what my definition of good voting is and bad voting is, and then like talk about different kinds of bad voting and why there um, are different obligations with regard to that. So, yeah, okay, so I define... Uh, good voting in terms of what, what isn't bad voting, or how about this? You vote well when uh, you vote for what you justifiably believe will promote the common good, which means that you're, you're, vo you're voting for what, for a thing that you think will promote the common good, and you can there's a clause in there for strategic voting, so it will promote the common good given how other people are voting and so on, which might mean voting for a bad candidate if that causes gridlock, and if gridlock is good, it can allow for all that. Um, so you vote for what you justifiably believe will promote the common good. It's not enough that you believe it, because it turns out Empirically, most people believe they're voting for the common good. Very few people actually vote selfishly. Most people vote altruistically. But you have you are justified in this belief. Um, justified in terms of whatever epistemology says about epistemic justification, then that's it. You have that. You are justified in your belief that you're promoting the common good. Um, and I mean that to be a, uh, um, a de dicto claim, not a de re claim. I don't mean that to require that you actually have the correct view of, uh, like you believe the correct political philosophy, but that you right. just believe that you're promoting the right ends of government. Um, Okay, and you vote wrongly, you vote badly if you vote otherwise. And so some examples of bad voting would be uh, if you vote on the basis of deeply immoral beliefs. So suppose you're uh, a racist and you refuse to vote for Obama on the grounds that he's a black Muslim terrorist sympathizer and you would never want a Muslim or a black in office. Um, that might be, that would be a case of bad voting. Or if you're completely or, or very deeply ignorant, um, then that would be a case of bad voting. Or if you're irrational, uh, which is probably the most common form of bad voting, if you just you hold political beliefs, but you don't hold them on the basis of evidence, you instead have hold them on the basis of bias and motivated reasoning and so on, um, then that would be an example of bad voting. Now, for me, when I say you have an ethical obligation not to vote badly, that's not a tautologous claim because bad voting is, is just defined as not voting for what you don't justifiably believe will promote the common good. So it's still an open question whether there's any kind of duty there. Uh, so what I try to argue, my main argument is this. There's, there's three kinds of, uh, uh, of wrongful voting. Uh, there's what I call unexcused harmful voting, fortuitous voting, and then fringe voting. So let's take the first one, unexcused harmful voting. Uh, unexcused harmful voting is when there's a group of people and they're, they're all voting for something that's going to be bad, something that's going to harm the common good. Uh, and you participate in that. You vote along with them on, for that thing. And my argument is... You have an obligation not to participate in collectively harmful activities, at least when there's no significant, morally significant cost from you from refraining. When you vote um, more badly, you are in participating in a collectively harmful activity, and you can typically walk away with no morally significant cost, so therefore you shouldn't do so. 
Now, the, the morally interesting premise there, of course, is the one about, well, why should you walk away? Uh, why, why would you have an ethical obligation not to participate in a collectively harmful activity? And one argument is simply that thought experiment before about the firing squad. But you can also back this up by thinking of, with, with other kinds of things, you can run a kind of Kantian line on it and show that, you know, a, uh, a maxim that allowed you to participate in collectively harmful activities would not pass the, um, uh, uh, would, not, would not be universalizable because it would, uh, uh, what's the term for it? Uh, it's not the, it's not, it's not a, a contradiction in conception, but it's a contradiction in the will. You can run a rule consequentialist argument and show that uh, if you had two kind of, um, two otherwise identical moral codes and one of them forbade these kinds of activities and the other one didn't, the one that forbade them would have better consequences overall so that this would form part of the optimal moral code. You could run a eudaimonist argument and talk about um, uh, uh, virtue and so on. You could also talk about intuitive ideas about fairness. So um, you might think that uh, we as a collective have an obligation collectively not to impose bad government upon innocent people through violence. But uh, then you ask, well, how do, how do individual people discharge that obligation? And you might think the fair way to do that is for everyone to refrain from participating. Um, so there are a variety of different arguments you can give in favor of this principle that says uh, uh, when you, can, like, you should avoid participating in collectively harmful activities, at least when there's no morally significant cost from you to you from refraining. And I put in that clause, at least when there's no morally significant cost, because that might be an excuse. I mean, if it turned out that someone had a gun to my head and said, uh, you know, you have to vote badly or I'll shoot you or shoot your kids. Well, yeah, maybe I can vote badly. Or if it turned out that there was some other really high cost to me, uh, like in the, even in the thought experiment about the firing squad, if they say, you shoot the kid or we'll kill you or we'll kill your kids, well, maybe it would be permissible in those cases. So I do have this sort of clause, like unless there's um, uh, a morally significant cost that you'll bear for participating. Now, when I, I first wrote a paper about this back in 2009, it was published in um, the Australasian Journal of Philosophy, uh, called polluting the polls when citizens should not vote. And that's where that version of the argument came out. But I realized afterwards, and I'm kind of glad I figured this out, not somebody else, but uh, <laughs> I realized that that doesn't actually cover cases. The argument I gave in that paper, uh, the polluting the polls paper, doesn't cover cases where people vote for a really good thing, but for bad reasons. So right. you know, a lot of people, uh, um, that happens quite frequently. I mean, for almost any ideology you can think of, there are some people who hold it for really good reasons, and a vast majority of people who hold it for bad reasons, including whatever it is. You know, I think my beliefs about politics are good ones. I wouldn't hold them otherwise. But the vast majority of people who agree with me about this stuff don't have very good grounds for thinking it. They're kind of irrational. Most people are irrational about politics. Uh, maybe I am too. So, so there's the possibility of fortuitous voting. Fortuitous voting is when you vote for the right thing, but you don't have good grounds. You know, so if you sort of just stumble upon the um, Know, the better candidate you know like you you come in and you vote for the better candidate because you think he's better looking and it just turns out he is the good candidate that's the one that if you've had all the information you should vote for and i want to argue there that you're still doing something wrong um right. and the argument is it's pretty similar to the argument i've just given before it's about participating in collective activities but here it's about about a collectively harmful activity because it's actually collectively good it's about uh participating in an activity where you're imposing risk upon other people we as a group should not be uh, doing this kind of risky activity where we don't know what we're up to. We don't know whether we're going to harm people or help them. It's fortuitous if we do help them. You know, I think there's it's just an un, un, unacceptable, unjustified imposition of risk, and I should refrain from doing that. Uh, so finally, the, the last kind of interesting argument is, well, what about just total fringe voting? So uh, there is something like an American Nazi party, and I think the guy, the candidate in 2008 was a guy named Samuel Bowles, and 
maybe something like 62 people in the country voted for him. He got fewer votes than Mickey Mouse. Right. Uh, so can you really say that if you vote for him that you're engaging in collectively harmful activity? I mean, it's one thing if you're voting for a guy who has a real shot, but what about people who just have no chance at all of winning if you vote for them? Are you doing something wrong? And there I think it's that's kind of a more puzzling one, but it comes closer to being genuinely like littering. It's kind right. of like if there's a clean park and a bunch of other people have taken it upon themselves to keep it clean and observe the rules that keep it clean, and then you come along and just throw some trash down. Now, by doing that, you maybe don't despoil the park. You really don't ruin it, but you are kind of taking advantage of it. You're, so uh, I kind of agree with that free-riding argument. There is a case where you're clearly kind of free-riding on other people. You're, you're, make, you're imposing a cost that they have to make up for. You're making it so like every time you cast a bad vote, two people have to vote well. Um, so I think that might be a reason for you to refrain from doing that, at least if there's a more significant cost of your restraint. Can I ask about the fringe voting? Just sure. one very quick question. Um, do you think that so in the book, the examples of the fringe voting are always the 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 uh, this this uh, national socialist candidate? Yeah. Um, do you think it's morally wrong for someone to write themselves in? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh, if if you're actually a good candidate, it might just be kind of a symbolic thing. It doesn't have any real consequences. If you're if you're good, then sure you could vote for you. Maybe other people should be voting for you too. So the free riding concern then comes in only when it's fringe voting in the sense that the fringe candidate is somebody who is unsavory and uh, in, in some very strong sense bad. Yeah, that's right. And this, I mean, again, this is not, whether this argument works is not quite as obvious as with the other ones. It's a little bit more complicated. But yeah, I do think of it as like, well, if you're writing for someone bad, then you're doing something, you're doing something bad there and you're kind of taking advantage of others. If you're just writing in yourself then, and you're actually good, then, then maybe that's fine. I mean, one thing that people ask me is, uh, is there a moral requirement that you vote for uh, the good candidate that actually has the chance of winning? And there I kind of just defer and say, well, if it turns out that in order to vote well, like like I, I say, I defer here to the people who are experts on strategic voting and how it works. And I'm, I'm not really one of those. I mean, I know more than most people, but I, I'm not likely to publish an article on that. If, if they come down and figure out that the truth is, yes, in order to have an effect like you have to vote for this. Um, you have to vote for certain candidates. And if you don't do that, you're actually making things worse. Like collectively, you're making things worse. If they came up with that, then I might think, yeah, there's an obligation to vote. There is actually an obligation to vote strategically. But pending sort of that result, which is not, no one has produced yet in the literature, um, I guess I think it's fine to just vote however you want. Um, there might be cases where you do have a special obligation to vote for, uh, like if you've already coordinated with other people to vote for a candidate who might not be as good as the best one, but that's what it takes. There might there might be special cases like that, but I'm I'm not really so sure. Can, can we can we move on sure. to the buying and selling votes? Yes, uh, because this is another, uh, and again, it might even occasion a similar kind of puzzle from the one uh, uh, that that uh, um, that we were just talking about, where uh, again, if voting individual voting is inconsequential. Uh, um, uh, is how does that figure into the morality of buying and selling votes, or how right. could it be okay? These sorts of things. So, uh, I take it that uh, uh, you reject the idea that uh, it's wrong to buy or sell votes. Um, so, uh, let us know why <laughs> why that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I want to say about it is this: uh, my my claim is if it's okay for you to vote a certain way for free, then it's okay to take money to vote that way. Um, if it's okay for you. Uh, um, yeah, so if it's okay for, and also if it's okay for someone to vote a certain way for free, then it's okay to pay them to do that. So I, I think that buying, introducing money into 
into votes doesn't create wrongness where there wasn't any pre-existing wrongness, though it might be able to amplify it if it were already there. So if you're going to vote badly, and like say you're going to vote for like selfish, like you know, on behalf of a, one group to exploit other people, um, and I pay you to do that, that might be that might amplify the wrongness. But if it's okay for you to vote a certain way for free, then I think it's okay for you to take money to vote that way. Um, so one of the reasons for that is just the failure, I don't think that there are any really compelling arguments to think otherwise. I mean, people have a pretty strong intuition that money and politics must never meet, but I, I wonder if that's just overgeneralizing something. I mean, in general, in the real world, when you see money in politics, you should almost always assume that something bad is going on. Uh, right. You'd be right. So it'd be, it's unusual. It'd be, it'd be strange for someone to go around and say, oh, you guys are great voters. Here's 100 bucks. That's my way of saying thank you. And, or I, I just think you're really smart, and I just want you to vote well. So here's $100 to go do it. Uh, you don't usually see that. You usually see money in politics being a result of actual corruption. But that doesn't mean it's inherently corrupt. That doesn't mean it's inherently wrong. Um, so what I, I do is just try to come up with some cases where it seems fine to me and then look at some arguments and saying that it's wrong and try to like undermine them in one way or another. So first of all, it's, it's worth focusing on figuring out what exactly vote buying and selling are. Because when you buy a vote, you're not literally, like, when we talk about vote buying, you're not literally buying a vote. You don't, if, if I pay you to vote, I don't then thereby acquire a second ballot that I get to cast. Um, I don't have, usually have an enforceable contract. I'm really just paying you to do a performance. Uh, so it's more like, if uh, you own land and I give you money and say, grow corn on your land, here's $1,000 to grow corn. I, I don't get to have any of the corn. I don't get to step foot on your land. I don't get to see it. It's just I'm paying you to grow corn. Or I, I take, talk about analogy prostitution. If you uh, buy sex from a prostitute, you don't literally buy uh, his or her body. You don't, as like you do with organ sales or, or slavery, you're just paying them to do something with their body. So similarly, when you buy and sell votes, you're just paying a person to perform a certain task. Um, so you're not actually acquiring a second vote. You're just paying them to do something with their vote. So uh, here's some cases. Now, I've already, I take it I've already established at this point that there is no obligation to vote. So if somebody decides to vote well, he's doing something that's morally optional. He doesn't have to do it. Uh, it's, it may be super derogatory. It's not clear to me why that would be wrong to take money for that. There's a whole wide range of activities that are publicly beneficial that... Um, we're, we get paid to do. Firefighters get paid. Presidents get paid. Even jurists, uh, jur, uh, juries, sorry, even jurists get paid, or they get paid very little, but they get threatened for not doing it. Um, right. You know, most publicly beneficial activities get are paid. Physicians are paid, and so on. What's so special about voting that makes it inherently wrong uh, to vote? I mean, to get paid for voting, I just I couldn't find anything. So I think of, I, I start by imagining a guy who has incredible civic virtue, has done a whole bunch of stuff to benefit society, and if anybody has discharged his duties to society, this guy has. And then I say, imagine he just decides, you know, okay, I'll, like someone says to him, he's not going to vote because he doesn't have to. He knows he doesn't have an obligation. But then his neighbor comes up to him and says, hey, you know, um, I really want you to vote because uh, I think you're a good guy and I think you're smart about politics. It's worth my while for you to vote. Here's $250. Go vote however you please. Um, knowing he, he knows that the guy will then make a good decision and vote well. I don't see that as it being any worse than if I say I've been volunteering to like clean up streets for the past 30 days, and then I decide on the 31st day I'm not going to do it anymore, and then some people get together and say, you know what, we, we love how you clean up streets, here's $250, please continue doing it, and I decide to do it. Um, and that's a case where someone's getting paid to vote his own conscience, but what about if someone's getting paid to vote how, how someone else decides to do it? Exactly, right. Yeah, now here, here again, it comes down to, is it okay for you to vote for free, then it's okay to vote for money. So if I give you 100 bucks and say, vote for Obama, um, and you just do it, and you have no idea whether Obama is good or bad, then according to my theory, you shouldn't vote that way, because you, you aren't justified in your belief, you aren't justified in thinking that Obama is a good candidate, so you shouldn't be voting that way, period, you should be abstaining. But 
if I if it turns out that you know that I'm an expert or you're at least justified in thinking I'm an expert, and so you're justified in, in taking my testimony that somebody is good as reasons to, to vote for that person, then and then I give you money to do it, then when I say vote for this guy, he's the good one. Um, if that thereby confers justification on for you to you for believing that he's the good candidate to vote for, then you're now allowed to vote that way for free. And then if you take the money, it's fine. Now people. That, that's my view on that, but people have mm -hmm. a lot of arguments against this. They go, well, they think there's something wrong with this for one reason or another. Um, and so I look at a variety of arguments um, that try to say that there's something inherently wrong about it. And one argument is just about commodification. They think there's just certain things that should not be commodified. Right. I mean, it won't be enough just to say, well, voting isn't one of those things. We need a reason to believe that. Um, it won't be enough to say, well, voting's a non-commodity and you should only pay for commodity, so therefore it's wrong. We need to know why it's a non-commodity. Uh, why is police work something you can be paid for and uh, but in judge work and lawyer work and all these other things, but not voting. Um, so uh, I look at some arguments. One is what you call I call uh, the corrupted meaning argument. The idea is that there's a certain kind of social meaning that comes with voting, and if uh, people participate in, like, get paid to do it, it will kind of corrupt that meaning. An analogy to this might be I use as marriage. So some people would say, look, in a marriage, people might exchange favors, but they don't. They shouldn't generally exchange money. I shouldn't pay my wife to have sex with me. That would be that would corrupt the meaning of the marriage and change the kind of relationship that we have. And I think the strong cases of that, like the cases where those sorts of arguments are intuitively plausible, are things like marriage where there's a special relationship. And even with marriage, I mean, I, I personally don't want to have monetary exchanges within my marriage, but I could at least conceive of healthy marriages where that takes place, and I don't necessarily prejudge whether that's wrong or not. Um, but I don't see the relationship of a citizen to other citizens in a large, uh, you know, a large Republican society as being like that. We have largely impersonal relationships to one another. We're doing a lot of things impersonally. I don't, I don't know if there's a corrupted meaning there if you're getting paid to do something that's publicly beneficial. Um, another kind of argument that people will give is that it might erode civic virtue. Uh, so if people get paid to do this, it might cause civic virtue to erode. Um, but even then, I'm, I'm not so sure if that works. For one, it's an empirical claim about whether that happens, and no one's actually established that empirical claim. There's not really evidence of that. Uh, I talk about uh, uh, Cecile Faber in her uh, response to, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, I, don't, I don't remember, um, Tetley or someone else who said that, well, you don't have people being paid to give blood because then um, this will erode the public, public spiritedness when it comes to giving blood, but she says, right. actually, no, it doesn't. Uh, like in England and the United States, you have the same number of people donating blood with the same for free with the same amount of frequency. Their attitudes about it are largely the same. It just turns out in the United States, you can also get paid to do it. Um, so again, that's kind of an empirical claim. It's not just clear that it works. Or someone might say, well, no one would do it for free if they could get paid to do it. Uh, it's like, well, well maybe. Oh, that's an empirical claim. You have to establish that. But, but it's not so obvious that that would be wrong for them to get paid to do it in the first place. Uh, so that doesn't really help us. And, and finally, I, I, mean, I talk about a number of other arguments, but I, one thing I kind of pause on here is to say, look, when you ask people about their intuitions about what should be for sale and what should not be, it seems to be highly dependent upon their background ideology. Uh, so Tetlock did a study on this. And he found, he says, Marxists are uh, proto, like he says, are prototypical, censorious, busybodies. Like almost every routine market transaction invokes in them a measure of condemnation. Buying a toothbrush, they go, ugh. <laughs> right. Uh, whereas, not surprisingly, like libertarians are like almost anything's okay if people agree to and they want to exchange money. That's fine. It might not be for me, but I'm not going to judge it. It's okay. Uh, left liberals are kind of like a little bit closer to the libertarian side than the Marxist side. But it looks like attitudes about this vary rather significantly. Some people say it's sort of undignified, but attitudes about dignity vary significantly too. And, and 
And so I don't think there's anything you can appeal to here with, for common ground. And the fact that it's dependent upon background ideology or so correlated with it might be worrisome. It might just be, well, your beliefs about this depend upon your pre-existing economic beliefs, and, uh, and so maybe you shouldn't take them too seriously. Um, so I, I would, at the end of the day, I go through a number of arguments um, and just try to see if I think they work and try to poke holes in them. And I just, I'm left with, I can't find anything that looks like a compelling argument in favor of this commonly held intuition that buying and selling votes is always wrong. So I'm just saying, I'm, I'm here by thrusting the birth proof back onto you. You who believe this, please come up with an intuitively plausible, compelling argument about why it'd be wrong to take money to vote well. I, 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 can, I can say, I can tell you why it'd be wrong to take money to vote badly, but why would it be, take, be wrong to take money to vote well? Well, that's very um, uh, uh, provocative, uh, I should say, and uh, philosophically, like the whole book uh, is just a real... Uh, uh, lucid and uh, 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 very lively uh, set of considerations. Um, so, Jason, uh, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and we could certainly go on for uh, uh, an hour more. Uh, we've 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 not covered uh, a lot of uh, really interesting stuff that's in the book, the ethics of voting. Um, but uh, maybe uh, I've taken up enough of your time. Um, so, could you um, just final question? Could you give me? Uh, a minutes-long description of what the next project is. Okay. Well, there's there's two. Uh, I'll give you a quick description of both. One is uh, I'm I'm really starting to think now about the ethics of prosperity and the important and what because I was teaching a class on this here at uh, at Brown. I'm going to be teaching a class on this when I move to Georgetown. Um, what what good is economic growth? Is it merely a means to an end? Uh, what is there such a thing as the limit? Uh, if you if you ever read Keynes's piece. Um, economic possibilities for our grandchildren. He says there's going to be a limit where we just don't need any more money. And I have this sort of intuition that all things being equal, an infinite amount of wealth would be best. Um, so I'm, I'm really starting to think more about that. I might be writing a book on that question. Um, and then uh, the other thing I'm doing is I'm after writing this book, a number of people, including the referees for the book and other people have read it, said, you know, you've given a, a pretty strong argument in favor of thinking that uh, certain kinds of voting are unethical. Um, but you don't. You're agnostic as far as whether it should be whether the government should do anything about this. You just sort of you say it's compatible with democracy, but you're not necessarily uh, taking a stance on what we should do. But you also give a bunch of empirical evidence because uh, you you cite studies and so on showing that most people in fact vote badly when they vote. So it looks like they're all violating these ethical obligations. Why think that people should be allowed to do that? Why not hold the stronger claim that it should be forbidden? Why not defend something like what David Eslin calls epistocracy, uh, which is the claim that government should be, or political power should be limited to those who are comp, who are experts or someone. And so I've actually started looking into that, and I've become less democratic than I had been. I'm starting to, to try defending arguments in favor of epistocracy. Um, so I recently published an article in Philosophical Quarterly um, called The Right to a Competent Electorate, where I argue that uh, citizens actually have a right to competent government, and if that requires something other than democracy, then they have a right to that. And then I talk about how that interplays with other arguments in favor of democracy. I'm working on a paper now that tries to argue that uh, epistocracy is actually compatible with public reason liberalism, um, despite all the protests that it's not. Um, so I'm not necessarily really on board with epistocracy, but I'm starting. I'm looking into whether it has. There's more to be said in favor of it than people uh, than people commonly believe. Uh, well, maybe Plato was right all along then. Yeah. Well, I, you know, <laughs> well, on that thing, I think uh, the problem with Plato is the idea of a philosopher king, like that the, only the very, very best should rule, might be hard to defend. But the, the weaker claim that only the competent should rule, uh, that I have a right to competent government, that's much more defensible. And I think that's one of the things that we need to look into as democratic theorists. So John Stuart Mill rather than Plato. Then. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us. The book is The Ethics of Voting. It was published just a few months ago with uh, Princeton University Press. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And for what it's worth, there's going to be, a, I, apparently in the spring, there's going to be an expanded softcover edition with actual practical advice about how to vote well. So look look for that. Excellent. We'll yeah. take a, keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Jason Brennan of Brown University. We've been talking about his new book, The Ethics of Voting, published by Princeton University Press. I am Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.